Turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 7 of John's Gospel. We're looking at the final section of that. Just want to give a quick report of my travels this week. Uh, went away on business to Florida. First time for me being there, which was uh, quite packed with uh, lots of activities from morning until evening. But again, it's been amazing. As I told you, my first conversation with my boss and the other, there's only three of us that do the job of this new position that, in the bank. And um, the one person talked about how he had his mission trip. And, um, uh, and then this, when, uh, when I was there this week, I met uh, a brother in the Lord who attends uh, Stuart Brickstill's church in, in Milwaukee. I met uh, somebody who's... Uh, uh, part of the PCA in South Carolina who attended the church where my, one of my favorite uh, professors uh, it was a pastor at. It uh, just seems that we just keep unfolding of these people that the Lord is, is uh, exposing to me of, of believers in, in this bank so far. Of all the 13 years I was, or 14 years in the other bank, I really never met anybody. Uh, and this has been a short time. It was at a People from all over the country, national sales team, uh, my boss is in charge of everyone uh, on the nation, and so brought people from all over the place and had some wonderful experiences and conversations, met some wonderful people, and uh, had a safe trip. So, um, but amazing to see what God is, how God is, as I said, this was God's uh, way of opening a door for me to be here at this bank and uh, at the right time. So we keep unfolding uh, his surprises to me. Uh, thank the Lord for that. We turn in today, we're looking at chapter 7 verses 25 to the end of this uh, chapter of John's Gospel. Rereading what I read last week, verses 25 to 31, and then going on. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and, he, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, where I am, uh, am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is John's commentary, helping us come to an understanding of uh, uh, what he meant by this. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone before him, to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and then learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do come before you this morning thanking you again as always for this rich word that has endured time and will always endure time. Father, we thank you that the, the incarnate word, your son Jesus, is real to us. And we thank you, Father, that you have made him real to us. And because of him coming, we now know you as Jesus clearly speaks in this gospel and in the entire book. We thank you for us allowing to know you, but as the scripture also teaches, we are amazed that we are known by you. We are amazed that this knowledge is not just a head knowledge, it is a heart knowledge that you have about us, Lord, that you gave your son for us, that you chose us before the foundation of the world and before all things were created. You chose us to be your children before any decision we could ever make was done. And that, Father, when we came to the point in our life when we made the decision to follow you, it was because you started that work within us, Lord. And our prom your promise to us and our prayer is that you continue, Lord, as Paul writes to us, your words to us, and you who began that work in us will see us and see its work to the very end, and we thank you for that. So we are here, Lord, if we hear only that today, Lord, we are rejoicing and we are thankful and we come to rest in that promise of you, Jesus, that you will never leave, leave us nor forsake us. Lord, may these words bring encouragement to us as we continue to hear these words penned by John, but inspired by you, that they will come to help us understand your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember again this prologue, the very beginning of the book, where John writes to us, the true light, verse 9, the true light enlightens everyone, meaning that not just Jews, but all nations. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I'm hoping that you see as we go through this gospel, you see this lack of understanding by those who should and the understanding of them, of Jesus, by some who would, we would never expect to understand. We see people who are Gentiles, people who are sinners, people who are unlearned, coming to know who Jesus is, and we're learning that by God's grace, God is, the only way that happens is by God drawing them. And to those who don't know Jesus, and to those who are coming to find out that they really don't love the Father because they don't love the Son, as Jesus said, is really hardening their hearts against them. And that's what happens. It's like God withdraws his grace from people. It's like Plato. I think about Plato when I think of this. If you put Plato back in the can all the time, Plato remains pliable. You take Plato out of the can... Plato does what Plato does best, dries up. And so when God leaves us to ourselves and withdraws his grace from us, our hearts become hardened toward him. But if God is working in our life, if God is calling of us, if God has chosen us before the foundations of anything that has ever been created, if he has called us, there will come a time when we are not hardened by the gospel. Though seemingly sometimes people look like that, yet God brings them about. It's all of God's work. Because if you and I were left to ourselves like that Plato, we would dry right up and be nothing. We'd be useless. We'd be dead. 
And this is what Jesus has been telling them. Now you notice how Jesus, the more he unfolds who he is, the more the reaction towards Jesus is. Now we've been talking about this and we're going to continue to talk about this. The more people come to understand who Jesus is, you're going to get a response. So you're going to have to understand that that's not a response to you or to me, but it's a response to who Jesus is in the gospel. Look at what's happening here. Jesus is unfolding himself layer by layer in profound ways by these signs that we find in the gospel of John and how he pronounces who he is by the fulfillment of scripture and the fulfillment of these rites and saying that you put your hope in these exercises, these hopes, these rites, these rituals, these ordinances that, that the law gave you to do really are dead and empty in themselves and obsolete because now the one who they were all pointing to is here and you don't see it. So I want you to see that the more we expose Christ, again, expose Christ. If you and I are idiots, we're idiots. If, we're, if we start being jerks about the gospel and start trying to beat people with the gospel and trying to show our own self-righteousness, if we try to point fingers and saying, ha ha, I got it, and you don't, if we start pointing ourselves, making ourselves better than everybody else, then we deserve to be ostracized. We deserve to be uh, persecuted because we're jerks. But if we present Christ as who Christ is and the gospel for what the gospel is, it has nothing to do about the package, it has nothing to do about the deliverer, it has everything to do about the gift and the subject. And we can see this happening here, in here, in this book. And why are we, we should not be surprised. Turn with me to, uh, Luke, chapter 2. We read this at Christmas. <laughs> we don't, we know, maybe sometimes we forget the story of the gospel at Christmas because we're so enamored by Christmas. But remember, Jesus was presented in the temple in Luke, chapter 2, and he was um, presented to a, a man named Simeon. And uh, we look at him in verse 22 of chapter 2 of Luke, and it says, And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of, God, of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was a righteous and devout Man, waiting for Jesus to come, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was already working in his life. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles. You see, this man had an understanding that God was not localized to one land or to one people, but to the world. And the glory for your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what he was, what he was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Do we not see this happening in John's gospel? We see many, many in Israel rising up and actually understanding who Jesus is. And to those who have risen up by their own wisdom and by their own knowledge and by their own power, falling because of who Jesus is. We should not be surprised that this is 
who Jesus is. And notice what he says in verse 35. So that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. We're seeing this happening. Now we get caught up in chapter 2 of Luke and we see when the angels are proclaiming the birth of Jesus and suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, there's a distinction of peace only to the ones he's pleased with. Not over everybody because Jesus has died for everybody. He's died for all nations, but he's only died for those whom God has called and God is pleased with because God has predestined them to come to know who Christ is and he has started that work in them and he will see it to the end. That's what Jesus has been talking about. Now today is World Peace Day. Now can that really happen? Great goompaya feelings, right? We can all sing and chant. You know, there's a, a monument. I don't know if you ever know. There's a, the Haystack Monument at Williams College. If you ever get like, a ride to Williams College, there's a monument obscurely put off to the side down the bottom of the hill outside the center of, of the campus. And there's a monument there. And it says now on it about praying for world peace. But it really was the place where some men got together and started praying for the world to come to know Christ by the where the world where, where the church starts sending out missionaries for the gospel and for Christ's sake to the world. And these men gathered there all the time to pray. Now what is it relegated to? A monument for world peace. No one's going to really know unless you understand and look for the haystack movement. Google it and go and see what it's all about, how these men prayed for this to happen. World peace sounds like a great idea. But if we understand the gospel, you and I know that it's a futile day of recognition. Because the only day we're going to have peace is already in Christ and forever with Christ. And Jesus has come only to give peace. Turn with me to uh, Matthew 10. Just to clarify where I was starting with that thought, turn with me to Matthew 10, verse 34. This is the consequence of Jesus revealing himself to us and through us and through the gospel. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not. I come to bring peace. Not going to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be of those of his own household. We see that Jesus, just by his nature of being who he is, divides people. Separates people. And it happens in your family. It happens in my family. It happens to all families unless God changes the families, and they all become Christians. But there's a division. You're an oddball. There's something wrong with you. We can't be ourselves. As I said last week, my friends departed from me because they didn't want me to ruin their life and didn't want me to ruin their fun. Now, Jim, when you come, make sure you just don't preach and make sure you don't act like you, know, like you want to act because let us just have fun. Well, good, go have fun. I'm not going to stop you. Why am I going to stop you? I'm not going to. It's your decision. I couldn't make it. I would have loved to have gone because UCLA won the basketball tournament that year, and that was my favorite team that year. I just started a new job at, at, at the other bank I worked at and had been unemployed for a long time and could not just leave automatically. But, boy, it was a great, it was a great series, great seats. I, it was, I, I wish I could have been there. But... They, I didn't go, but I did get that, you know, that rebuke on that phone call. Jim, well, I'm going to fly you out here, but, and, it's, and, and you, it may happen to you as well. But I, what, what I want to show you is, is that this is what Jesus does. Jesus divides people. He brings people together from all nations who speak differently, who look differently, but yet, and many times, 
You know, we can, we can have a great relationship. We can have a great dinner. We can be talking about all kinds of things. And then all of a sudden, you talk, something comes up about faith or something comes up about your views on certain uh, morals or uh, ethical issues, and you can see the great divide taking place. All I had to do, as I told you many times, my father would tell people that I was a pastor. I said, Dad, please, please don't let that be the first thing out of your mouth. Don't let people know that I'm a pastor. I want people to be normal with me. I want to be able to get to know these people. I want to be able to talk to these people. But just don't tell them I'm a pastor because the rigor mortis sets in immediately. <laughs> Everything just quiets, dead, and, you know, this... This actor comes out, goes through the motions, and I don't know. And then I get in the car and said, I told you not to say anything. But you shouldn't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed, but I want to get to know these people. You don't understand what a wedge Jesus puts in our life between people who talk to one another, who get to know one another. If Jesus is the front, I mean, when, as I said, I went and started, started talking to these people, and before you knew it, Peace by peace got together, and our hearts embraced. Because I found out this brother was in the Lord. I found out this sister from South Carolina was in the Lord. And her face lit up when I told her who I was. And we had a common ground, not only, not only in Christ, but also in preachers and pastors and denomination. And it was a great fellowship. And we bonded tremendously. And we could sit down and, you know, it was 9 o'clock at night and have some pizza and have something to drink and talk about, you know, just the Lord and talk about our lives and talk about how we got to where we were. It was wonderful. Why? Because Jesus didn't divide us. He brought us together in a unique way, bigger and thicker than blood. But we see here that the divisions, as we looked at last week, we see the divisions among the people. We're seeing divisions among the priests and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. As it's talking about the Jews, as John used that term, these are the authorities in Israel. When the Jews say this and when the Jews say that, he's talking about this group of people. Now notice the Jews and the Pharisees, excuse me, the Sadducees and the San who made the Sadducees and the Pharisees made up this governing board called the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. They didn't really like each other. But you notice how when, they have a, when, when people who don't like each other have a common enemy, they become buddies all of a sudden? And then when the buddy's gone, they hate each other again because now they don't have anything to bring them together. Well, we see this here. There were, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and the Sanhedrin were getting together, and they were like, notice the arrogance of these people. The arrogance. When we go on and we read through this, as they were saying um, to, G to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? We see this confusion among people in this chapter. And you and I know, and I hope you have had the opportunity to talk to people about Jesus or ask them questions about Jesus. Have you ever asked anybody who they thought Jesus was? Quite a, you know, when you get the opportunity and the door opens up and the Lord opens the door up, it's a great thing to, I've used, like I said, many times I've asked people who they thought Jesus was. And you get as many different answers as you get in here. He's this, he's that, he's this, he's that. He's a nice guy. He said wonderful things. He said he was God. Some people, I, I wrote down one here. It says, Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy. This guy was a scientist. Uh, I read this from somebody else's uh, survey they did. God is energy to me, uh, electric energy, because it's something that we don't know. That's what somebody said. Everybody has a, a a, an idea an I of who Jesus is. And you and I know that even in churches, there are people that have a different idea of who Jesus is. That's why you see this crazy Italian up here shaking his hands every week, telling you that we have to understand who Jesus is. And we have to understand what the gospel is, because we can't be ambiguous about that. We can't say Jesus is this, and we can't say Jesus is this, and think that they're going to make sense. We've got to get our act together. We've got to understand what the gospel is. We've got to understand why the church is here. We've got to understand that this is the pillar of truth. We are the church. We are the people of God that have a unique calling in this world. And it isn't to feed people, though we are to. 
It isn't to clothe people, which we are to. It isn't just to help you. It is primarily to tell people about Jesus. That's what we're here for. But on the other hand, we're to make sure if people are hungry and people are thirsty, we give them a cup in Jesus' name. We give them food in Jesus' name. We give them clothes in Jesus' name. We do our actions. And why do you do what you do? Because Jesus is the one that gives me a heart to serve you. That's why. I just don't do it because I'm just a nice guy. Jesus is involved in what is another red I read here. Um, he was one of the. He was uh, somebody who looked up to as our leader. He's an individual who lived two thousand years ago, who was interested in social betterment of all classes. Great idea, and denominations are still buying into that social gospel. Trouble with churches that are reformed or have the gospel that they forget about the social aspect of the gospel as well. We've got to make sure that we do one as well as the other because that's the gospel as well. But you see that Jesus not only brings division, he brings confusion upon people because, as, as Simeon says, he really reveals the thoughts of many hearts. And that's what you and I are going to do when we really want people to come to know who Jesus is. It's not by your power, and it's not by your might, but it's by the Spirit that God changes people's hearts. And if they become offended because of the gospel, that's not your fault, that's not my fault, that's not your problem, that's not my problem. It's up to God to change people's lives. Our problem and our fault and our, our work is to make sure that we understand the gospel and we understand the Bible for what it stands for and what it says and the story of redemption and from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. So Jesus comes, and he's going to bring division, and we see that the light was not being accepted, and the darkness hated the light. It hates the light, Jesus says to us. And his people are not accepting him. And that's the Jesus who then turns around and calls people to himself, and just people melt because of who he is. Notice these different people have different reactions to who he is. He says, some people in Jerusalem therefore say, is not this man, isn't this the man who you're trying to kill? Why would you want to kill him? Jesus was talking in the temple. Jesus was talking in the temple where? Very important, because we're going to go on to verse 37 and 39. Jesus is talking in the temple when? Remember I told you last week? This is the Feast of, of uh, Booth, or the Feast of Tabernacles. There are three pilgrimage feasts. Passover, which was... In the spring, and had um, um, the day right after Passover was the Feast of uh, 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 Tabernacles. I'm, yeah, no, Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, or the Feast of Weeks. And that was the time when the barley was being harvested. Uh, then, uh, then we see uh, this now, this is the, the Feast of Tabernacle, is the very end. The very end of the harvest season, right now, the fall. This is when this is taking place, in the fall, October. And now this, this great time, if anybody, if, as I said, if they have anybody canvassed to do, who would go on pilgrimage, what is your favorite pilgrimage and festival to go to? They would have said, it is the Feast of Booths, because it is a time of Thanksgiving. It was their Thanksgiving day and Thanksgiving week. It was a time when they thank God, one, for remembering them and bringing harvest to them and their bounty, and they were so thankful because it's an agricultural marker. But then remember, too, it's the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which reminded people that they lived in wandering and they lived in booths and they lived in temporary huts while God took them through the Exodus and they were made out of different kinds of uh, uh, material. Some are tents, some pitch, you know, tents. They have, you know, they make them out of um, uh, branches, out of trees. And, and it, they, it still goes on today, evidently. I'm told, I never was there, but it goes on today that rooftops and places that, that really, you know, conserve the Jews will put out these booths to remember the Feast of Booths. And it was a festive time. It was a great time. There were more people there than for any one of the pilgrimages. Tens of thousands of people used to come. 
part of the, the activity, part of it was centered around, it was a, uh, of course, it was a, a convocation every day, temple worship every day. And in the morning, when they did the morning sacrifice, the priest would, the high priest would take the people in a procession out of the temple precinct, take them out, and bring them to the pool of Siloam, and fill the jug up with water, and they would enter then back into the water gate of the temple, and they would go at this site, and they would, at the morning offering, they would hold up this water, because water to them meant that God provided drink. I've never been really thirsty. Now, I, I can tell myself that I've been really thirsty. I know of occasions when I just kept on drinking and drinking and drinking because I really thought I was thirsty. But I've never been thirsty to the point that I thought I was going to die from thirst. So I can't say, for me, the degree of thirst was different. People who know what it is to have nothing and no water and really need water because they're going to die are thankful to the Lord. And that's what these people were thankful because they realized that God provided this water. So part of the worship service and part of the sacrifice was that with all these people, and they're in procession now. Now we're talking just tons of people in procession, processing around Israel and around the, uh, the, the temple and into the temple. And so what are they bringing? They had, they had uh, uh, willow branches, they had palm branches, and they had myrtle branches. And in the left hand, they had a piece of fruit showing that God was in control of all their growth, provision, all their provisions, and they shook them and they waved them and they sang, you know, the Hillel Psalms, uh, the praise Psalms, Hallelujah, Hillel Psalms of 113 through 118, and then they would they would recite uh, Isaiah 12, talking about dipping the water in the, in the dipping the cup in the water of salvation. And they were rejoicing. People were screaming, and they were so thankful. And to them, this was a wonderful time. And they would, they would do this procession every day. And then on the last day, which is, as Jesus says here in verse 37, John tells us, on the last day of the feast, the great day. It was the great day. Jesus stood up and did something. But why was this so important? Because they marched around seven times around the altar. And then when people wanted to see part of this excitement was to see the water jug pouring out, being poured out. So they would scream for the high priest to hold the, the jug up higher and higher, the pitcher higher and higher, so everyone could see this water being poured because to them it was a blessing. And so here he, they're, they're screaming and screaming and, and holding up as he wants to hold up this pitcher of water. And he's pouring out this pitcher of water. Now, I don't know. Maybe it seems that when at this great day and this, this occasion, Jesus doesn't just say anything. What does the word say here? He cried out. Now, when you cry out, it isn't a whisper. It isn't a normal voice. Jesus cried out. Now, was it during a time of silence? It could very well be when they, it says in some places that there was this great, great joy and this great sound of exaltation. When the poor, and then it seemed like there may have been a moment of silence or quiet when it was done. And this may have been the very time when Jesus made himself heard. But in this drama, because you and I would read this and, read, and go like this. On the last day of the feast, a great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now we read it that way, but that's not how Jesus said. He cried out, he says, If anyone thirsts loud enough in a temple over this unbelievable group of people, you think he wanted to be obscure? You think he wanted to be quiet? I'm so thankful that Jesus screams out and cries out. It gives me validity sometimes. Pastor Jim, why can't you be a little more? I've been told that in the past. Why can't you be a little bit more subdued? Because I can't. I'm sorry. As I told you, I get excited about the gospel. I get excited about Italian food. I get excited about a lot of things. This is how I communicate. Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now remember in chapter 4, he gave that woman at the well water. And now he tells them, he's saying, you're looking at this cup of salvation being poured out. From Isaiah chapter 12, the, the, the imagery is pretty powerful and palpable that when they're pouring out, everybody understands they're talking about the salvation that God, Yahweh, can only bring. And Jesus says, come to me if you're thirsty. Wow. You talk about drama. You talk about the tension in the room. 
You talked about if anybody really hated Jesus, you think they loved him then? Whoever believes, notice, notice the word, whoever, and if anyone thirsts. He's not saying to all you Jews. Jesus is bringing out this mission statement that it includes everybody. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us in the commentary, this is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit coming in their lives. And when you become a believer, out of you will come the Spirit of God. And Jesus, remember, as the illusions in Exodus chapter 17, Moses struck the rock and water came out of the rock. And Peter, and then Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 that the rock is Christ and Jesus is the spiritual drink. You see how he all ties in that imagery. You don't look to that rock. You don't try to find that rock. He, Jesus, embodies that rock. He is the completion and the fulfillment of all that. Everything is pointing back to him or toward him, excuse me. Then, now we look back at it and say it all was pointing back to him. And Jesus explains that over and over again. He says, if anyone is thirsty. Now, the, the, the issue is, is that everyone is thirsty. Everybody is thirsty. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that, doesn't it? We're thirsty for something. But what is the thirst that causes us to seek the Lord and causes us to thirst him? Because we find our drink in everything that we see around us, in people and in things. And we can find our thirst feeling as if it's satiated and satisfied, but the Bible tells it's only for a while and not everlasting. Jesus is the only one who will ever bring us peace. He's the one that gives us peace. My peace I give you, he says. The peace of God we have. It's God's own peace that we have. And we can't have peace of God until we have peace with God. So we can't give peace of world peace until we give everybody Jesus. Until everybody has Jesus, that's when they can have peace. But you and I know that according to the scriptures and according to Jesus' own word, that not everybody's going to heaven because there's a hell. And so we see the fact that Jesus brings about, just by being himself, by just being around people, by just being out, by being, revealing himself to people, people are not going to light him. Now, there's going to be differences of opinions and difference of reaction. You go to back the book of Acts chapter 17, the, Paul is speaking to the Areopagus and he's talking to them and he says, you know, he goes, he was telling, oh, you people who are religious. And he says, let me tell you about this, this shrine to this God that you don't know who he is, the unknown God. And they're saying, what does he say when he's done speaking? Some people just hated him. Some people just left. Some people just came back for another dose. And some people believed. That's a reaction. Completely different than Simeon. Simeon who sees Jesus and goes, oh. And then the same response of what? Not the same response, but another response of Jesus coming is Herod. Kill these kids. Get them out of here. He's, if the Messiah is here, we've got to kill them. Wipe these kids out. So we hear the crying and the weeping of children, the scriptures teach us and tell us about. Now notice the vision, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And then somebody, someone said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village of where David was? And so we see that people show their stupidity as well. Do you, you, you're, you're a Christian? Yes. Do you know who Jesus is? Yes. Tell me about the Jesus that you believe in. Is there anything wrong with asking people that? No, there's not. Oh, I believe he came, this Jesus came from Nazareth. He didn't come from and Galilee. He didn't come from Bethlehem. Well, you and I know that the scriptures teach, and we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's how much they know about him. And so there was a division among people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest, but no one laid hand on him. Why? Because Jesus was not going to die on the Feast of Booths. He was going to die six months later at Passover in the spring. So we see here, six months from this time, 
Jesus dies, that week of going in into the triumphal entry into, G- into Jerusalem, that's this whole thing, six months from this time. Some of them wanted to arrest. Some of them, no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priest and said, who said to them, why didn't you arrest him? They said, sent these officers out. Now, these officers were probably Roman soldiers. And the officer said, you know, I don't know. I don't, we don't know if these, these soldiers have been involved in the conversations. We don't know if they've been talking about Jesus in the back door. We don't know if they've had, you know, talking about him in a, in a very terrible way. These people didn't have, seem to have any preconceived idea. They just realized, that this guy, I've never been around anybody who spoke like him before. Which is important because Jesus' words is what really affect our lives, who he is, who he said he is, what he's done for us. And the Pharisees answered, oh, have you been deceived too? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Notice the standard. Notice the standard. They said, if you believed in him, you're a bunch of idiots because we haven't. Have any of the Pharisees believed? If we haven't believed, then you have no right to believe. If we're, our standard of belief is the standard of, of perfection, then you can. But if we don't believe, you can't believe. This is what they're saying. And then Nicodemus, oh, notice, no, next, I really picked a really arrogant statement, I missed one. Verse 49, but this, crowd does, they, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. <laughs> These people, you're cursed because you're not like us. We know the law, you don't, and you're accursed. You talk about the epitome of evil within the religious quarters of the nation of Israel. It's right here, we're seeing how dark the very nation of Israel is. And how dark the economy of Israel here is. And this is why Jesus sees the rising and the falling of these people. And his people did not accept him because they were not looking for him. They were playing religion like many people do. Nicodemus, who had gone before to him and who said one of them, who, who was one of them, one of the leaders, one of the people in the know, he says, wait a minute, guys, this isn't how it works. This isn't how our law works. This man is innocent until proven guilty, isn't he? So where are you getting this from? And notice what they said. Are you from Galilee too? You're not speaking like one of us. You must be one of his. And notice they show how stupid they really are. See, that no prophet arises from Galilee, and they don't know their Bible, because Jonah was from Galilee, and Elijah was from Galilee, and Nahum was from Galilee. Are those guys prophets? I think so. They had very good, they were outstanding, in the, and they had their own union card for the prophets. They were, well, they were well versed. They were well accepted. They were well known. There are some books by Jonah, and there are some books by Nahum, and Elijah is a pretty powerful uh, uh, prophet in Israel. This is, how, this is where stupidity and ignorance comes out, and I don't mean it in a negative way, in a terrible way. I say stupidity. Because sometimes it's just blatant. Because you talk to people about Jesus. What have you read about Jesus? What have you read? I don't know. I've never read a Bible. Well, then how can you speak? Do you know anything about science? Well, yeah. Have you read a science book? Yes. Good. Then you can come with it. But have you ever read anything about Jesus? Have you read the Bible? No. Then how can you talk? I mean, that's, that's how blunt we need to be with people. You know, just saying, folks, come on. You're not stupid. You're not You're not. You're, you're a halfway intelligent person. Give me a break. You're going to give me an argument for, about something that you have never read, not even one sentence about, except on a Hallmark card? Or you may have gone to church and you've said something, you've been to a funeral, or you may have been to church at Easter, or you may have attended a Christmas service, or you may have watched TV, or you may have gone to Sunday school, and you're basing your whole faith upon someone who says he's God, and upon someone who says that he's the only way, the only truth, the only way, the only life, the only one who can ever bring us peace with God, and you're making the decision based upon your research? And that's the, kind of, that's the kind of response we're going to get. That's the kind of people we're going to talk to because you know what? I think it's a very good chance that many of you are like that is like me as well. Hey, man, I was solid. I told you this, man. I was a solid Christian. I, had, I, I, I did everything right. I, had, I just had this condescending spirit about Protestants. And this condescending spirit about people who weren't Roman Catholic. And people who didn't go to church, and I'm saying, why aren't you there? And I talked to people at that class reunion and said, you know, I told them, I said, remember, 
You know, Robbie, yeah, Robbie and I used to go out and hang out and, you know, we'd stay out all, all night long. But boy, no matter how much sleep we had or we didn't have or what condition we were or we weren't, at 7.30 in the morning, we were at Mass at 7.30 in the morning with our eyes as slits, but we were there. And for those poor slobs that weren't, God doesn't love them like us because we did everything we could to get there. And so we're all, we're all self-righteous until God brings us to humility. And God brings us to a place of where we really thirst because it isn't enough. It isn't enough. As I said, that person said to me this week, or two weeks ago, you know, it's not enough. My Christianity is not enough. I feel like I'm missing something. You are. That's why you're thirsting. That's why you want. But you know what? Are you really thirsty or are you just telling me that you're thirsty and you just want to make a Jesus the way you want to? You want a religion like you want to. You want to make sure that you still want him to pull back some of the chips, chips that you did all the years as you were a good churchgoer and you were a good girl in church. And, and you want him to pull those forward for you and then give you some new insights because, you, you know, that's really how you want to play this game. And, you know, people don't want to hear that stuff. But, folks, if their life is in danger, if their eternal destiny is in danger, is it not right to say those things to people? Is it not right to say, wait a minute, you got Jesus wrong, people. You, got, you don't know who Jesus is. Let me tell you. Have you read the Bible? Yes. More than once. And you don't need to have reverend in front of your name. You can be a Christian and understand the Bible and just say, yes, I read the Bible. I'm not an expert. I can, I'm telling them I'm not an expert. I got, a, I got a master's degree level in Bible, but that doesn't make me an expert. That makes me more scared. Because of sitting down, getting my degree, issued my master's degree at Gordon-Conwell, I had the chills walking up there because I said, now people think I'm actually going to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what a scary thought about God. People are going to actually think you know what you're talking about. And we do on some level, of course. We have, a, we have an understanding of theology and the Bible and, and redemptive history, and we can read different kinds of genres, and we can read different languages, and we've read philosophy, and we're students of the world, and we understand these things, and we pull it together. But many of you are brilliant like that as well. And it isn't up to you or me that changes anybody's life. It's Jesus. People come to know Jesus as John 3.16, folks. But realize, this is the effect that Jesus has on people. So don't be surprised. Just don't let it be about you or me, but let it be about him. If they're going to respond, let them respond to him, not to you, not to me. Let us pull ourselves as far as away from the process, other than the fact that you've just received it because this is the greatest thing that you could ever. You know, this is the most important question that we could ever ask people. Who's Jesus? The most important question in the world, not a cure for Ebola, not a cure for, or not a way to kill the group of ISIS or ISIL, not how to change anything in this world. Those arms are important horizontally, but vertically, the most important thing that ends up vertically as well is the question of what do you do with Jesus? And who is he? So, folks, we have the most important question to ask people. And we should not be afraid. We should not be fearful. It, it's, it's going to be. It's, I'm not going to be just telling you and encouraging you. It's not going to take it away. But realize that when people look at you, and Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, people are going to hate you because they hate me. So it's a spiritual warfare. But remember that Jesus is a divider just by being who he is. He, he, he brings confusion. Hopefully, you and I are the people that are being the recipients on this side and going, wow, let me bring some order. Let me bring you some clarification. Let me tell you who Jesus is. And you never know that the Holy Spirit may be using you to bring clarification to somebody, to connect the dots where somebody has planted a seed before and somebody has watered before and somebody has cultivated before and all of a sudden God gives you the privilege of being able to be like this on the, on the Feast of Booths, bringing in the harvest. It's a great, great privilege to be a part of that by watching that light bulb go on. It's a wonderful experience. I hope you all experience that one day. It is exhilarating to be that. When God uses your feebleness to be able to proclaim 
this Jesus. It's remarkable. And I pray that God gives you the opportunity this week to do that. So let's pray together. Dear Lord, we do ask you this morning to, uh, again, clarify for us. If there are those sitting here today that think they know who Jesus is, but now they're finding out they really don't, or they understand the gospel and they really don't, or they understand redemptive history and they really don't, then, Father, I pray that they're hungry enough to ask and thirsty enough to seek you. And for those of us, Lord, who understand what it's all about, Lord, we rejoice in knowing that it is not about us, it's about you. And yet, Lord, we know that there's persecution coming to these people. We know that this is why John is writing this book. Most of what we're reading here in these chapters are written nowhere else in any of the Gospels. And John pulls these up for these people and for us so that we understand with more biblical evidence added on and compounded with what we have in the synoptic gospels as well, that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. He's fully God and fully man. And Lord, we can't get our hands wrapped around that, but Father, neither can we eat an elephant in one swallow. So Lord, I pray that you give us a hunger to, to continue to eat and continue to drink and, and to be thankful that, Lord, you've made us thirsty and that we have sought the right cistern to find living waters in. Because, Lord, as you and I know, as we all know here, that as Jeremiah tells the people of Israel that you're digging wells where they're really never going to hold water. Even though they may hold water, they're never going to be the water that really, that really quenches their thirst. And, Lord, we thank you that you have given us the real water in Jesus. I thank you for bringing us salvation. I thank you, Lord, for giving us that understanding and that peace that that portion of our life, that nagging question, has been answered for us. Lord, there are many other questions about life. There are many other questions about who you are because we're not God and we don't know your ways. And your ways are still mysterious to us. Your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we're going to have questions. But, Father... We thank you that you've taken away the big question about who is Jesus, and we've come to him. We have thirsted, and we have come to him, and we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that you use us this week to either plant or cultivate or water somehow for someone that you are calling to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I need thee every hour, number 674.